Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. If you're in the hospital, you buy a stack of these pouches that are going to come off the machine that we're working on. You give one to each one of your employees and they take their masks for today, however many rooms you expect them to go into and put them in this pouch. And then you sterilize them and tomorrow morning when that employee comes in, he takes the same masks yesterday that are sterile now and uses them. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Today's guest on the show is Gordon Erickson, founder of Quality Tool in Batavia, Illinois. Quality specializes in tooling up packaging machines, often for food products such as meat and cheese. Since the COVID-19 crisis began, Quality has played an essential role in combating the epidemic. The company has tooled machines to package cotton swabs for testing people for coronavirus. Soon it will be tooling machines that produce pouches for holding N95 masks so they can be sterilized for reuse. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and six to eight weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. After FireTrace stops a fire, its system quickly rearms and you can have your machine back up and running in as little as 45 minutes. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com swarfcast. That's www.firetrace.com slash S-W-A-R-F-C-A-S-T. I am very, very happy to be with Gordon Erickson. He is the president and founder of Quality. Gordon has actually been a longtime reader of today's machining world, never done a podcast before, and I'm really excited to introduce him to this world. He left a comment on a very recent blog. The, the question we asked was, are you doing anything to help with COVID-19? And he had a number of things to say. And I, for one, am somebody who... I've kind of wondered what I could do to help because I would like to help, but I feel a little bit helpless. And so it was very refreshing to talk to you and, and see what you were doing. So just to get started, though, why don't you tell everybody what quality is? And um, am I saying the name right? Quality? Yeah, quality. It's kind of a play on words. Right. It's spelled K-W-A-L-Y-T-I. And uh, so quickly, I'd like to learn about your company a little bit and get your story. And then I want to go into some of the things that uh, you're making. Okay. Well, I guess for starters, we are uh, kind of a small machine shop. Our main products that we work with are vacuum packaging machines. The manufacturer we work most with is called Tiramat. And basically... What you would recognize our packages as is like a bacon package, a hot dog package, 
it's a cheese package, something like that. And what our machines do, they pull film off of a roll, form a package, put your hot dogs in it. They seal the top on under vacuum and then make the cuts across the machine, the cuts in the machine, and the finished packages come off the end of the machine. Okay, so I'm picturing like you you buy meat at the store and it's kind of like styrofoam at the bottom and then there's plastic on top. Is that what you're doing? That's basically the product, but the packages that you would see that came from our machines would be the ones that don't have most of the time any rigid form of any kind on the bottom. So like if you're in the hot dogs area, You'd see packages that are better vacuumed against the hot dogs. There might be like two stacks of four or five hot dogs in each one of the packages. Yeah. Sliced lunch meat is another big one. So those come off of the machines and you have those machines at your shop or you're selling those machines to the meat packers? We sell them to the meat packers and then we also sell them into the medical industry. And in the medical industry, they would use the same machine to make something like a suture mobile kit or a package of gauze, uh, maybe some lab sponges or operating room towels. Okay, so you've been selling to the medical industry for a while then. Yeah, that really is how I paid my way through college, working with this equipment in medical companies, kind of keeping the equipment running and then taking my paycheck and investing it in business and then in engineering classes. All right. So tell me something about that then. So how did you encounter this kind of equipment in this this field? Well, I grew up in Williams Bay, Wisconsin, and I worked at a place in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and they packaged cotton tip applicators and some lap sponges, but mostly what we did there was cotton tip applicators. So I worked on the machines that manufactured the applicators, and then sometimes I made parts as like a machinist during the summers to be installed onto the machine, the various different machines. And I learned a pretty good amount about packaging. I kind of followed that company around to Alabama for a couple of years. And I came back to the Chicago area and started working with a company called Hooper. And what they did was manufacture these vacuum packaging machines. And while I was working there, I met a lot of people that worked at various different companies around the Chicago area. And I would be the guy that would show you, if you were the customer, how when you turn up the speed, when you change various settings on the machine, turn the temperature up and down, what would happen and, and what you'd want to do to make adjustments, to make good packages. And those guys started calling me at all hours of the day to get help to keep their machines running. Interesting. So between the years of probably uh, my career at Hooper ended in 96 and between the years of 96 and or 86 rather and 1990, people were calling me at all hours of the day asking, what would you do if, what would you do if? And I'd kind of give them the answers over the phone and then I'd go out to their plant and help them in the morning before I went to my day job and then go out after and work with them at night sometimes. Then they started asking if I could make this part or that part. And in the shop that we had at work, I'd come in on Saturdays and Sundays and maybe make a mold for a new product for them so they could form some of the new product and see if things were going to work out with it. And finally, around, 2000, or around 1990, it got to the point where I needed to hire an employer because there wasn't enough hours in a day. One guy could, I would have to give up my day job, which I wasn't going to do. Mm-hmm. And then when I hired him an employee, then I had to have insurance for him and workman's comp. And, and then you said, fine, 
I'll start my own business. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of when quality was born. Interesting. Interesting. So you are making like the molds that people would put in to the equipment to make the packaging. Yeah. So if, say, somebody retired a machine that had packaged cheese, and then somebody was looking for a machine that would package hot dogs, they would remove all the tooling from the cheese packaging and scrap that, manufacture a new tooling that would make the hot dog packages and rebuild the machine set it up so that everything's ready to go, take it out to the customer and put it in, make sure everything's the way they want it to be. Interesting. And then they continue running. And if they have a problem, we might give them a spare part or do some repairs, field service, whatever. So you're customizing people's machines that they already have and then, you know, troubleshooting for them and coming up with molds, coming up with the ways that they can make a part. Yeah, for these machines, they call it tooling rather than dyes. So we make the tooling to make whatever you come up with for a product. It doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, we've made cereal balls, you know, where they they form it, they put some cereal on it, they seal the lid on it and cut it out. People buy it and just peel the lid off and pour milk in there. Okay. We've done all all different kinds of things you can just about anything you can name but we mostly are in the meat related stuff meats and cheeses right you you told me that you did a lot of stuff for vienna beef yeah vienna beef has i think three machines that are ours that they actually auto load the hot dogs in vienna beef is huge in chicago for those people who have never heard of it very good yeah so Definitely, they're really good hot dogs. Probably the best ones, but we do some stuff with Scott Peterson and Best Chicago. You know, what, what about kosher hot dogs, like Best's Kosher or Hebrew National? We've made some things for Hebrew National, but they're not. I don't believe they're in Chicago. The one we were working with, I think, was in New Jersey, and there was a chauffeur kosher out there also. So we did work with those two. We don't do a real lot for them because they were far away. They're, if there's one in Chicago, we've never done anything with them. Okay. Cool. All right. This brings us to right now, COVID-19. Some people are opening up now, but a lot of places are still in the house of pain, New York, larger cities and other places in the world. And you mentioned a few things that you were doing for the effort to make life easier. Yeah. Some things we did, some things we tried to get them to. Yeah. Give us, tell us what you've, what you've done and what you tried to get into. Both things are interesting. The way it kind of started out for us, everybody saw J.B. Pritzker get online and tell everybody you're staying at home from now on. It was a Friday. And that afternoon, we had uh, four phone calls, and then we got an email from Vienna saying, you guys are important. Mm -hmm. You are our spare parts. Uh, I just left Eckridge close to us, and they don't even carry their own spare parts anymore. They just use what we have in inventory, and we either messenger it out to them or they come and pick it up. Kind of the same thing for the Carl Buddig group. And when these people called us and said, we need you guys, then we knew we weren't staying home. So Monday morning, almost all of us showed up. And Tuesday morning, all of us were here. And and what happened to the food industry is kind of interesting because a lot of these guys that we work with, they make things for restaurants. A company like Amity Pack would sell whole pork shoulders to various restaurants, and then they cut it up themselves how they see fit. And they needed to make a jump in the retail. So we've done whatever we can to 
if they have an idea, we try to make the parks as fast as we can and give it to them. And, and they put it together and try to sell the products into stores, which they've made a good jump on. Oh, because now people are shopping at stores rather than going to restaurants. They can't go to a restaurant. And a lot of people don't want to do carry out there. They kind of moved to cooking at home. And you saw what happened to the stores. I see. So that's why the demand changed. Yeah, it was kind of kind of a change for everybody, but they had to do something either that or they were going to go under. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Okay. Well, tell me about the medical stuff now. Yeah, we've been involved in a couple different ones. We've got outfit down in Florida that we made. They had a 20-up setup that they were running syringes on, and they got an order for three-inch swabs to do the nasal swabs and an order for six-inch swabs to do the nasal swabs. So we made the molds necessary to convert the tooling they had, and they're running three shifts a day on on the three-inch swab. Oh, a swab. S-W-A-B. Swab? Yeah. Ah, okay. Swab. So it's like a Q-tip, but a really long Q-tip. It starts out as a plastic handle and then gets a little smaller in diameter and metal and then has a cotton pad on it. We have them set up to run either one of those two sizes, and that's probably been the biggest one. We tried to get involved with the edit kit, but we weren't able to get involved with that. They changed what they were going to do. Which kit? Uh, Abbott Lab. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I tried to get involved in that because I knew an engineer up there and I talked to them. There just wasn't, they weren't going to do it with like a PL open package, like what we're able to help them make. They wanted to do it with a tube with a slob inside there and some juice in there. And you could get your culture or whatever out of somebody's nose and then put it into the juice. That's what they were working on at the time, the engineer I was working with. And I don't know everybody up there. I only know one guy. So we, didn't, we weren't able to do too much with them. So these are the machines to put the plastic over the swab boxes. This is to package the swabs. We'll uh, vacuum form a package, and then they put the swab in it, and then we seal the top on it, and we'll do the cutting and everything. And then when it gets to wherever it's going to be used, they just grab hold of the peel end and pull the two sides apart, and the swab is sticking up in the air out of it. Interesting. And uh, you said something else about masks. What are you doing for the masks, or you haven't gotten into that quite yet? Well, we're not actually making the masks, but they want to reuse them. And we're in the process right now of making a perforating system to go on to a machine that makes pouches. And they've got an order for millions of these pouches. And after you use your mask, you're going to take it and put it in the 
pouch and then it's going to go through an autoclave to be sterilized so that it's clean and usable again. And then basically you've got three or four masks and you put them in there, put it through. And then when you go from room to room, I guess you use a new mask every time and they can't really afford to throw that many of them away. Wow. So this is for the, what are they, N95? Yeah, but we wouldn't actually be making the mask. We would only make the pouch and then you would take, so you were issued five N95 masks by the hospital you work at. At the end of your shift, you'd put them into this package and I guess put a label on it with your name and they overnight would sterilize and when you come back to work tomorrow morning you peel this package open and there's your five masks for today and it's the same ones you used yesterday and they can get a little more life out of them they start to get dirty or anything like that i mean they'll be sterile if you go buy a mask right now it won't be sterile after these guys get done with it they'll even they'll be cleaner than they were when they were new that is interesting so you make what's the pouch made of Plastic? Uh, one side is plastic. Uh, it's a PET material. And then or mylar, it could be. I think the ones that are going to get autoclaved, I think, are either mylar or cellophane on one side and Tyvek on the other side so that air and stuff can pass through it. When it gets under pressure, it doesn't explode. Okay. So I'm just trying to picture it. It's plastic on one side. And what was the other side? A uh, material called Tyvek. Tyvek. It's kind of a breathable plastic. It's white colored. You can print on it. And it's really hard to tear. Okay. So you would configure the machine that would then be able to seal them in plastic. And then it somehow goes into a sterilization process while it's in that plastic. Yeah. If you're in the hospital, you buy a stack of these pouches that are going to come off the machine that we're working on. And you give one to each one of your employees and they take their masks for today, however many rooms you expect them to go into and put them in this pouch. And then you sterilize them and tomorrow morning when that employee comes in, he takes the same masks as yesterday that are sterile now and uses them. How does it sterilize it if it's in the plastic? Well, the autoclave process takes the temperature and they're up to around 250 degrees, I think, of steam. Ah. And some steam passes through the Tyvek and then they, I believe at the end, they pull a vacuum on it to remove all the moisture and steam and everything. I see. And that's like the safest and least expensive. And then they could also use ethylene oxide, but everybody's a little leery of that right now until the whole sterogenics thing gets sorted out. Is there any other products you're making? Or is these two, the swab, the swab packaging and the pouches? And these ones for the mask and then the same customer has pouch making machines and they also make like bags that could have saline solution. When we did the work on the seal plates that we did, they said that they were going to be plasma bags and they've been running those for a couple of weeks. I never really see the end product. We make a part for a machine and we give it to them and then they run it and they tell me, yeah, this is going to be a plasma bag. You're going to start hearing about this pretty soon. It's big stuff. And then you start hearing about it on the news. And you did your little tiny part. Interesting. But normally to get one of these seal plates, if you ordered it from a machine maker in Germany, it might take you three months. And we made this stuff in a week and got them going as fast as we could so that they could start making it there in three months and these situations to wait. So what do you, the, the overall supply chain and as far as getting the equipment and, you know, various parts and supplies we need, I mean, you're sort of on the inside. So 
What is your opinion of the way things have gone um, from the beginning until now? I mean, clearly things are getting better, but, you know, if you listen to most of the media, they would say that we were terribly prepared and we didn't do a great job at the beginning. What's your perspective on how everything was handled and, and then how we adapted? Yeah, well, you know, I think they did the best they could. I mean, at the beginning of these things, nobody knows what's going to happen or anything. And at the end, everybody knows what happened. So we call over here, we call them hindsight engineers. I mean, in the beginning of this, you didn't know. You thought that they were going to fill up McCormick Place with people who were dying. And you didn't know what was going to happen. But you did know, in our case, you knew everybody was going to have to eat. So did what we do and made sure that machines of packaged food were running so that the food would be there. That is so interesting. Because when you told me before, I mean, maybe you left that in the comments as well about the meat stuff. But when I was thinking essential items that you were making, the things that came to my mind were the medical stuff and the way you're portraying it. And it makes total sense is food is just as essential as anything. And it's just so interesting. People just don't think about these little details that go into everything. I mean, I guess it's the same with the precision machining and the various little parts that go into things. But And the medical guys kind of knew, you know, what would be used. They knew people were going to need the swabs. They knew they were going to need lap sponges. They knew they were going to need pieces of tubing. And they wanted to make sure that their machines were able to run it as good as they could. They knew they weren't going to need syringes for some reason during all of this. So we've been doing repairs on the syringe tooling that has been needed for years for big companies like Cardinal Healthcare and Medline. They've been sending us their syringe tooling to do repairs on that they've been asking us to do a repair for years, but they want it like same day. And it's not possible to wild right. machine Teflon code and reassemble in a single day. But see, what's, what's interesting to me is you're the behind-the-scenes guy like most doctors aren't thinking about. Maybe they are, but I, don't, I, I would think that they're not thinking about, yeah, we need these swabs and um, how are they going to be packaged? Or do you think that they are in touch with that? I think they're kind of assuming that a big company like a Cardinal or Medline or something is always going to have them in stock and they'll just be able to call up an order. Yeah. And the people there are trying to foresee these guys are going to call and ask for the stuff I better have it and trying to make more than they need knowing it's going to, everything's going to turn into toilet paper at some point in time and they're going to run out of everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I think everybody knew in December that we were going to run out of masks. There probably wasn't many people who didn't see the news and didn't know something was going to happen when they saw what was happening in China. Right. But I bet you there weren't too many people who were worrying about how everything was going to be packaged so they would get it. <laughs> Nobody really even thinks about packaging. Or, you know, you, when you think of hot dogs, the last thing you think about is the package that came in. Nobody really thinks about it. They, they're focused on the hot dog. You know, they're focused on the swab they're going to use, not the package that came in or how it got sterilized or anything. But it is still, I find it interesting after I've been doing this since 1978, really, on and off. And it's been interesting every week of the entire time. Yeah. No, it, it is very interesting. It's always interesting to learn behind the scenes. I mean, this is truly behind the scenes, but truly essential. How does it make you feel uh, doing this work in, in this time? 
I'd, I'd like helping people like this. You know, they recognize that they got a problem and they have no way of solving it. And then between our engineering, machining, assembling capabilities, we're able to manufacture whatever it is that they can dream up. And I'd like helping them make the whatever they dream up happen. Yeah, you know, they, everybody has ideas, but for the most part, they can't make it happen because we have a guy that actually is doing swabs. Uh, little flat swabs with hand sanitizer in them. And he had a great idea, but in order for that to ever become anything, somebody had to create a machine that could do all kinds of different things to the films to make it happen. And I like doing that and then watching them go into action and start selling and, and start making money off of it. A lot of times they end up getting rich off of it. Maybe they'll even buy us a beer. You, you, you're not getting rich off this, I assume. I mean, you, 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 you I, I hope that you're being compensated well. We, we do okay, but there's not millions of dollars in the machines because when you sell somebody a machine, there's you maybe get two or three hundred thousand dollars for a machine, whereas they're going to make ten or more million dollars when they buy it off the products they sell them. You sell a million products for a dollar a piece. You can make some portion of a million dollars after you take the cost out. Sure. You're not going to get that out of the machine. Yeah, we, we, we experienced that. But after about two weeks of running that product, it gets kind of boring. <laughs> I'd like to move on to the next project, the next idea, and try to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. So would you say that this moment in time has given you extra purpose in what you do on a daily basis, or do you feel like you already had that? I think we pretty much already have it. Maybe because it's a little more, because there's a little more pressure. Everything has to be done faster. So. Yeah. But it's really time to wait. If they don't get it in the market real fast, then they may miss the whole thing. Right. But either way, whether you're doing this or whether you're doing meat during normal times, you really don't have any margin for error. Like that has to be perfect as well. It pretty much does when, like when they came out with the sliced lunch meat, they had some a company like Carl Buddick was basically making their two ounce package of lunch meat that's been around since you were a kid. Yeah, I mean that that'll kill you, but at least it won't kill you because of bad packaging. <laughs> right, and and that was a good package all those years. But then somebody came up with the idea that if you slice it so that it's like wrinkled up and down and then vacuum package it and put that inside of a tub and then people could open the clean part of the package and use the tub as a reseal. That's a whole different market and I guess they call it more of an upscale thing. Mm -hmm. And being around at the very beginning of that was pretty interesting to see. You thought, man, there's half as much meat here as there is in the other package. And then you see it on the shelves and people are paying three times as much and you're scratching your head like, how is this ever going to work? And they get the second machine and the third machine and the fourth machine and they're running it every day. People love it. So Very interesting. Gordon, I, I really appreciate you doing this interview. I learned some, some important things. I think it's important for the world to understand the little details behind the scenes and... Um, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, keep reading and hopefully listening from now on. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to get into listening to the podcast tomorrow. All right. Awesome. I'll send you an email when I listen to my first one. Probably be this one. <laughs> I hope it's See this one. It 
<laughs> I hope it's this one, but it's hilarious. There are too many people that say they've they didn't listen or or I had to get on them to listen. I think maybe they were afraid of their own sound of their own voice. <laughs> but anyways, thank you so much. Thanks, no. Bye bye. From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.